0: All right, we are continuing in the book of Matthew. If you have your Bible or you want to pretend that you have your Bible but really play on Facebook, uh, then grab your device now. We'll be in Matthew 23. Yeah, Matthew 23. So it's 12 verses from the beginning to verse 12. Uh, I'll read through it because it's not that long, and then we'll uh, have a look and see what it has to say to us. So it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers, and you do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the messiah the greatest among you will be your servant for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted and so this is kind of a scathing uh set of te- uh, a kind of teaching or uh, remarks by Jesus here and they make up uh, the beginning of the last kind of set of Jesus teaching I, I I'm pretty sure it's the last set so basically the way Matthew framed the gospel is he kind of has it in four se- uh, five sections which is kind of uh, resembles the five sections of like the Torah's five books like it was just his way of paying homage to the five books this is the last set of teaching and uh, but the build up to this is what's most important. So, we have been over the last month kind of doing the build up to this. So, I'll do the, the quick recap of that build up because it sets the scene for just how kind of, I guess, aggressive is probably the right word Jesus is being here. Uh, so, we started out in Matthew 21 12, where Jesus fin- finally gets to the temple courts and he turns over the tables and he makes a whip and he drives out all the animals and he makes this accusation. Uh, where he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers, uh, which is a quote from the Old Testament prophets. And so he's, he's really starting to ramp up. This is meant to be a house of prayer, but you've made a den of robbers. And then he goes home and on his way back again the next day, he curses the fig tree uh, because the fig tree has all these great green leaves, but he gets closer and he realizes there's no fruit. And so he's like, It's a prophetic declaration that says, Israel has lots of green leaves, but there is no fruit. So they look like they're doing all the right things, but they're not producing any of the right things. Very harsh. And then he goes into the temple courts after that, and they say, where do you get your authority? Uh, And then he you know, he he kind of obfuscates a bit, but then he tells some stories, one of which is a story of two sons. And he says, and in the story, the master says, uh, the, the father says to the sons, will you go out and work in the field? And one says, Uh, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. And then changes his mind and does it. And the other says, of course, I'll go and work in the vineyard. Uh, It's a vineyard in the story. Uh, But then he changes his mind and doesn't bother going at all. And then Jesus says, just like this, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. The people who said that they weren't going to go and do the work of God ended up doing it. But the people who said that they were going to do it ended up just being a bunch of phonies. And now the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God ahead of you. And then he tells a story about the wicked tenants. And in this story, there is a, a man who plants a vineyard, and he does all the work, and it's very beautiful. And he hands it over to some tenants. And then at the time of harvest, uh, he sends his his messenger to them to say, "Give me my my share, give me my um, the produce from my land." And they kill the messengers, and then they kill the messengers, and they kill the 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 um. The, the the vineyard owner's son, eventually, thinking if we can kill the son, maybe we'll inherit it. They are wicked tenants. And he finishes that story by saying, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And then he tells a, another story about a wedding banquet, which we looked at last week. And in the wedding banquet, all the people that the king invited to his son's wedding, said, nah, we're too busy, we're not going to turn up. So he invites all of the people from the, uh, from the streets, the random people who should never be invited, he invites all of them. And there's one bloke that turns up wearing the wrong clothes, because, which is a, a metaphoric or allegory kind of for people who don't care for the, the king's wedding feast, who was rude and, just, and, um, and didn't give a damn. And that person, uh, because of the attitude of their heart that was reflected in their clothing, they were put aside out um, and they were angry and gnashed their teeth at God or at the, the, um, the master or the king in the story. The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So he keeps telling these stories. And in the stories, the people who are meant to do the right thing, who say they'll do the right thing, don't do it. And the people who are meant to be dejected or cast out or not welcomed are welcomed and they end up doing what was right. And then we have this little interlude that we, uh, we, uh, we're jumping over today where the Pharisees come to Jesus and um, after they keep getting accused and they think, we'll trap him with a question about taxes, uh, it's a well-known story and Jesus ultimately replies to them we'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's that's very clever and he gets out of their little trap there and then so after the Pharisees have had a crack at trying to trap him the Sadducees turn up and uh, so, in ancient Israel, you had different kind of groups. The Pharisees were kind of business people and leaders, and they uh, were uh, run the synagogues and had uh, leadership across the the religious world, but also the economic world. They were power players. They were the um, the the uh, what do we call it now the influences of the day they were the important people with the money and the prestige and then you had the sadducees who had uh, who kind of ran the temple and they were largely the the um the chief priest was chosen from the sadducees and they were really comfortable with rome because they had a good setup going so they liked rome being in charge because they would got power from that so they uh, they were the sadducees and they had a slightly different set of beliefs they only believed in the Torah and the first five books whereas the pharisees had invented uh, believed in the whole of that old testament canon and had invented a whole bunch of laws that had to be followed as well so the pharisees are trying to trap jesus and the sadducees are having a go at jesus uh, and jesus cleverly gets around their concerns as well they ask him about the greatest commandment to which he says love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself and then after so jesus has told all these stories that make the leaders look bad and they all know that he's talking about them and they plot to uh, entrap him they plot to to catch him out then jesus uh, hits back at them with a, with a question that stumps the Pharisees. Uh, and then he turns in Matthew 23, which is where we get to today. And he says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So he knows that the Pharisees are there. And now Matthew is largely writes about the Pharisees because the, uh, the kind of our best guess at when Matthew was written was probably uh, sometime after 70 AD, before 80 AD. So we know in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Uh, ADHD, yeah. Um, The temple was destroyed... In 70 AD, the Romans just obliterated the joint, and after that, the Sadducees never really recovered their their former glory. The only group that really existed uh, after that, the the Sadducees kind of disappeared. The Zealots, obviously, they were the ones who wanted to have a a violent overthrow of Rome, and, and then Rome destroyed all of them, and all the Zealots were gone. The other group that existed were the Essenes in the Qumran community. They were kind of this weird aesthetic community that... We think maybe John the Baptist had something to do with them because they were kind of hiding up in the in the um, the, the desert wilderness around the Dead Sea. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were probably uh, had some Essene material in them, and basically they were really super into ritual baptism which we know John was a keen fan of baptism as well. Uh, so the Essenes basically disappeared after 70 AD and the, uh, and the Sadducees basically disappeared and the Zealots basically disappeared. But the Pharisees continued to hold power in Israel um, in the first century after that point. And that's why Matthew's audience, um, their audience is still being influenced by the Pharisees. So a lot of the time when Matthew is writing, he mostly picks on the Pharisees because they're the group that still exists. So they're there. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat and Jesus is talking not to them now. He's already kind of made them shut up because he threw them a question they couldn't really figure out. So now he's just talking to his disciples and he starts by affirming their role. The idea of sitting in Moses' seat could either be because in the synagogue there was actually a like a professor's seat, a Moses seat, like an important, like, like I would be now in the Moses seat. Um, this is the position of authority. So it was either a literal place where they sat and taught from the Torah, or it was a metaphoric concept that they had authority. And that is that the words of the scripture were good. Jesus is affirming the words of the Bible and the words of the Torah. But then he takes a sharp turn uh, and he says, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So this is where we get the first kind of serious attack of, uh, of calling them uh, hypocrites in this section of Scripture. They don't practice what they preach. This is a term that we, we hear even today. People say this. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, I think it doesn't take a lot of effort if we were to brainstorm this. We can think of situations where there is somebody who is forcing someone else to abide by a set of rules that they themselves don't have to abide by, that are putting conditions upon their living or their life or their choices or uh, in a way that in no way impacts them. And it seems that we always choose somebody else's issue that we want to control, not the ones that impact us. Like last week when uh, I was talking and and I said that um, at the, it was the wedding feast one, and, and I um, in the past have been accused of being a bit soft on sin or something like that. Uh, it seems to me that Pharisaic type people are always very keen to be very aggressive about other people's sin, but less so about the things in their own life that may need uh, some, some change or some improvement. We very quickly, like these Pharisees, are happy to tie up cumbersome heavy loads on other people's shoulders, knowing that they're not a load that we personally may need to carry. This is a brutal assessment of the Pharisaic leadership. They are the most aggressive rule followers. But Jesus is saying, actually, all you're really doing is talking about these rules and not doing it. And then later on, he says, but if you are doing it, the only time you do it is so that you can get glory from it, not even because of the right reasons. So to the degree that they loaded up other people, Jesus says, you should cut that out because you're not even having to follow those rules. And the degree they do follow the rules, Jesus says, you're just doing it out of pomp and to make yourselves feel good. Now, we remember earlier in Matthew, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a stark contrast here between what Jesus is saying, I'm going to load you up, but my burden is light and my yoke is easy, compared to what is being loaded up by these leaders and Pharisees. Everything they do is done for people to see. This is pretty harsh. Imagine, like, you're there. Jesus is just talking to his people now and the crowd that were there. And there's a group of of these Pharisees there, and they're all dressed up in their Pharisee kind of garb, which includes, it says here, they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. So, a phylactery is like a little box. Now, uh, normally, uh, like if you go to Israel today, you can still see it. Uh, you'll go to the weeping wall where the Hasidic Jews are. And it's like a little black box. And they use a leather thonging and they tie it to their head. So they literally have like a box on their head. That's a phylactery uh, or a tepalin. And in that, they put the scriptures and they'll have another one. They'll have thonging and it'll be wrapped all the way around their arm, like a leather thonging. And there'll be a phylactery, a box with little tiny um, scripture extracts or manuscripts in it tied to their arm. And this is because in the Old Testament uh, and it says a few times, but in Exodus here's an example of it in Exodus 13:9 it says this observance f- f- will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. So the idea was is they would have this scripture on their mind, literally, and on their hand or on their arm, literally, in order to remind them to do the right thing, to follow the law. So it wasn't just to remind them academically. The point of the phylacteries was to remind them practically to do the the work of the law, to to have that working out in their lives. And the tassels were a similar thing. So on the edges of their tassels, they would have a particular weave. I think it was like a blue weave. But the weave of, that, of their tassels on the corners of their, of their robes would allow them to be in remembrance of God's laws and God's ways. Which is why even when we hear Jesus, uh, when it's like they just wanted to touch the edge of his cloak, they were trying to touch the tassels that were representative of the law. They're trying to reach for that. And so there was no mandate, though, in the Old Testament about how big these phylacteries and tassels should be. Now, can you imagine there was like an arms race to have the biggest phylacteries and tassels because that meant that you were more holy, right? You wanted everyone to see it. Um, so they're not just wearing little things. They're wearing like big, enormous hat phylacteries. Like they're they're going out of their way. They got the, well, check out my scarf's bigger than yours. You know, like it's, and like, we can make a joke about that, but think about it in Christendom. Think about it in in some of our more, uh, like in the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the Catholic tradition, even in some of our Protestant traditions, the hats and the outfits and the big crosses and the scepters and the big thrones. When they go to preach, they don't just have Moses seat. They've got a little castle up in there and they climb up there and then they... they, they Now, I'm, it's easy for me to throw a rock at that because no one around here calls me pastor and I don't have any special outfits. Uh, and But I can assure you, we find ways to be guilty of this same thing. We, do, we don't do what Jesus said, where he's like, "Give." in a way that one hand doesn't know what the other is doing. That's not how giving works in our modern day society. Giving works like we, we do it on GoFundMe and we all put our name on it. Like that, we, There is very rarely a charitable act that is done without um, someone seeking the glory for that charitable act. There are entire um, YouTube celebrities, their entire thing, the whole reason they exist is just because they are exploiting the poor by pretending to help people and then getting likes and getting paid by pretending to help people. And even if they are legitimately helping people, they do it so that they can get rich. So in Numbers, uh, I I did actually have the verse here. I'll read it to you. Uh, uh, The Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. And you will have these tassels to look at. And so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. So the points of these tassels uh, were to help people to stay focused not on on doing all the wrong things, but remembering all the right things. So that when their hearts and eyes are drawn away to the, the lusts and corruptions of the world, they can be drawn back by this token that reminds them. And so we have, you know, like people might wear a cross to remind them of that. That's not a wrong thing. Or people might have a, uh, a rosary bead, a prayer bead, or a, um, uh, they might have some kind of uh, thing, you know, even a tattoo, I know people who have like a, a religious tattoo as, and it's not like a, a, a wrong iconography or whatever. It's just there to help them to stay focused and to remember and say, this is who I am. I am a person of faith. That is beautiful. But when we go out of our way to have enormous tassels and enormous phylacteries and, and to post every good deed on on social media and to make sure everyone knows how great we are, all of a sudden we're beginning to fall into this same trap. A trap that Jesus could see the Pharisees had become masters of. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Remember, the Pharisees were not paid professional ministry people. The Pharisees uh, were business people who held power and influence. So they weren't just the most elite religion um, kind of focused people. They were also the rich people. Think about the power imbalance that would exist in society there. There was a total merging of religion and business and money and right and wrong and in and out. They loved to hold big banquets and they would hold banquets and they would sit and where you sat and who you sat next to and who you were seen with were all really, really important. And they wanted to have the most important seats in the synagogues. They all wanted to be where everyone would see that they were there. Now, that's not true in our little lounge room environment here, but there are definitely churches uh, in history, even now, where there are special seats for special people and regular seats for regular people. Um, There are, in fact, some um, places where the people could have like a booth where they sponsored it and they would get a special seat of honour in the church because they had propped up money to pay for something so they had reserved seating. It's amazing how what Jesus is saying in this context we have then gone on all through church history to completely mess up. Jesus is calling out the pride and self-promotion. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. I think there's only two times in the, um, in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is called rabbi and both of them are by Judas Iscariot. because it's a false honor that they were bestowing upon one another to build each other's egos. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And you do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Now, this could be a bit hyperbole. I don't think there's wrong in having leadership roles and Even Jesus says there'll be apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists and there were titles and offices and the ability to govern and all those things are important. But what's important that we also recognize here is that this was not about giving people status and saying these people are greater than anybody else. The next verse goes on to say the greatest among you will be your servant to say yes there may be a teacher, there may be a Parent or a father, there may be a rabbi, there may be these things, but those titles are not there as honorifics to glorify them. There are church traditions today in Christendom where we call people the right reverend or the most holy, senior, venerated, glorious, you know, chaplain of what a load of nonsense. We have gone beyond the point where these things are helpful titles in terms of our governance and they have become about pomp, they've become about prestige, they've become about power, they've become about the glory that I feel from that title. Jesus is not trying to undermine leadership here. He's trying to say that the defining feature of greatness is not about the title you have, nor is it about how big your phylactery or your tassels are, nor is it about how great your seating position is in the synagogue or at the banquet. The thing that defines how great a person is, is the degree to which they serve. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. For those at home who can't hear it, Jonah's got a really fantastically noisy kid's toy that's just playing a repeating noise. Um, Great fun for us. I did actually go and take all the batteries out of most of those toys, but that one must have escaped. It snuck back in. Some well-meaning person put a new battery in it probably. The point of Jesus' words here is not to say there should never be leaders and we should never have parties and we should never – That's we can miss the point here. The point, though, is to say we shouldn't be hypocritical. We shouldn't be finding ways to bring glory to ourselves at the expense of others and that we should recognize that it is the, the degree to which we serve that makes us great And it's not because of political or financial power or prestige or influence or wealth or religious affiliation or any of those things. The greatest among you will be your servant. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you um, came and dwelt among us as an example of true servant-heartedness. I thank you for Jesus' example to us where he led and he taught uh, and he lived it out fully and truly. And he died and he rose again. Thank you that we uh, can follow that example as a true example. I pray that in the times that we face right now globally, that we would have leaders that seek to follow that example and be servants. Not leaders that seek to establish their own kingdom through might and power and violence. But leaders who would be humble that would exalt uh, and raise up the, um, the needs of the poor and the oppressed. We ask that you would bring peace to our world. And we ask that you would transform the, the governance and leadership of our world to something that is more reflective of your kingdom. We ask that so, so truly, Lord, please come and, and establish something more beautiful here in our own hearts and lives, but also uh, globally as we look around. We just ask that you would uh, do something miraculous right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.